Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Welcome to what is very nearly the end of your week, probably, depending. And welcome to The Nose, which is something we do at the end of your week, probably, depending. Uh, We talk about culture. Today we are going to talk about a movie which is very much in the conversation, not only as a Best Picture nominee for the Academy Awards this year, but as a very possible winner. I think it is the betting favorite at the moment, for whatever that's worth. It's called Nomad Nomad Land. It is the third feature film by Chloe Zhao, uh, a director who is attracting a lot of buzz and is about to move from this very kind of spare, uh, grounded to the earth and grounded to the poor film, her third one of this kind, to a Marvel Comics universe, Marvel Marvel Cinematic Universe movie. But I'll tell you more about that later. Uh, The point is, we saw the movie, uh, and we're going to talk to you about it. We're going to talk to you about also the new USPS trucks, and is Mr. Potato Head becoming gender fluid? And if he is, or if they are... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> is that a problem? All right. Uh, joining us is James Hanley, co-founder at, of Cine Studio at Trinity College. Uh, Elizabeth Kiefer is Professor em- Emerita, or as they say in Potato Land, Emeritex, Emeritex <laughs> uh, of English at uh, Tungsis Community College. And yes, we will, we, will, we will begin with the, uh, with the story of uh, Mr. Potato Head, a confusing story, Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head, a confusing story. Whatever is happening here, the rollout seems to have been bungled, either that or AP misinterpreted what it was told. So there was a, a period of confusion, dare I say panic. Uh, in the uh, American collective consciousness, uh, in the zeitgeist, uh, on Thursday, when it appeared that Mr. Potato Head would no longer be Mr., uh, the name was going to the, the honorific would be dropped uh, from the brand's name in order to be more inclusive, so all would feel welcome in Potato Head world. We were told. Uh, it also said it would sell a new place at this fall with, with the Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head designations. Without the Mr. and Mrs. Potato. See, now I'm confused, too. The point is they seem to have dabbled with, toyed with the idea of making Mr. and Mrs. Potato had considerably more gender fluid. Then they've kind of backed up a little bit from it. Uh, and uh, meanwhile, there's been the kind of the typical cultural backlash. We can tell you a little bit about that. Uh, but um, in some ways, and, and people were declaring the end of civilization and as people will. Uh, John Stewart, however, had the best tweet. He said, first, they came for Mr. Potato Head. And I said nothing because it didn't seem like something to get that upset about. Uh, so, um, so James, get us started here. I don't even know if you grew up with Mr. Potato Head. Is, is there such a thing oh, yes. there in, in, in England? Yes, Mr. P- Potato Head was there. And uh, yes, I had one. Um, I don't know. I to me, I think it's a vastly successful brand renewal that's just taken place. Um, I mean, w- what better thing to do than to, to hook the public in and to energize the um, the nervous and and now hugely insecure extreme right to be energized about the destruction of society by changing Mr. Potato Head? But to me, it seems like a great way to renew the brand. 
Right. So, yes. And, and the uh, the right has uh, spoken up. Um, Steve Ducey on Fox News falsely stated that it, Hasbro was trying to be politically correct until the <laughs> backlash was enormous. Uh, and, um, and Piers Morgan. Why is Piers Morgan? Why is there Piers Morgan? Hey, Piers He's Morgan so tweeted. easy. He's so easy <laughs> to get going. I mean, what a, I mean, you just you don't even have to bait the hook. Right. So he tweeted, who was actually offended by Mr. Potato Head being male? I want names. Those woke imbeciles are destroying the world. So, by the way, if the world is destroyed, uh, you know who to blame now. It's Hasbro. So how about you, Elizabeth? How are you? uh, You used to be the staff feminist on my first radio show ever in the early 90s. So I'm turning to you now for help. Well, I guess I'm confused about one thing. They said they wanted people to be able to build different families with the potato people. And you can, I looked on the website for Hasbro at all the different permutations, which you would not believe, including potato chip heads, where the head is divided in little slices like chips and they're flavored and everything. But anyway, you can already buy two Mr. Potato Heads or you can buy two Mrs. Potato Heads and you can buy the children separately. So I, I was trying to figure out, you know, it, it does, I do agree with James that I think it's sort of a, some kind of rejuvenation since t- there's not a, another toy story coming down the pike immediately. So uh, they're just trying to find a way to get in the news and they did. Right. I mean, Mr. Potato Head has been pretty good a- about reacting to the times. I mean, sometimes the times reacted to him uh, as we have probably not even pointed out originally the plan was that you you had a potato and you got these the toy was just the stuff that you stuck into the potato to make a face there were several problems with this the toy was actually introduced right at the end of world of world war ii and uh, the toy companies wouldn't pick it up because uh, potatoes and all other food had been rationed and it seemed wasteful even then to waste a, a potato as a toy but then they finally caught on uh, but in the 1960s, the small pieces of plastic with sharp pins on them were considered unsafe for small children. Also, parents were complaining they kept finding moldy potatoes under their kids' beds. Uh, in the 1980s, Mr. Potato Head became the official spokesbud of the Great American Smokeout, surrendering his pipe to then Surgeon General C. Everett Koop. Uh, and uh, in uh, the 1990s, uh, he joined the President's Council for Physical Fitness, renouncing his role as a couch potato. Uh, oh, also, he, he and Mrs. Potato had joined the League of Women Voters in an advertising campaign uh, to get out the vote. And in 2002, when he turned 50, he joined the AARP, uh, the American Association of Retired Potatoes, of course. So... So you I don't see know. A pattern here, Colin. <laughs> tell, tell me what you think. The the pattern is simply what? Just sort of going with the flow. Uh, Mr. Potato is really secretly a weather vane. No, I think that it's a matter with toys, which are notorious for their the evanescence in the market. I think that you really uh, you introduce some sort of thing that provokes people. One of the curious things was the blindness of Mattel with uh, Barbie. Of course, it suddenly took them uh, certainly took them a long time to realize that the way to keep themselves current was to provoke interest and actually respond to people who said, "You know, this is kind of not." really great to provide this image for young girls and uh and so they they then discovered this advertising process that 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 went along with upgrading their toy and i think that mr potato head right from the beginning you mentioned the thing with uh you know with the problems with real potatoes i mean that could have really done in somebody who wasn't paying attention 
<laughs> well, no, Hasbro definitely paying attention. So, Elizabeth, I'm not sure we, we've uh, exhausted ourselves about Mr. Potato Head, but we might be close. Do, do you have any uh, final insights here? Well, one thing I find very odd is if you go on the Hasbro page, because I really thought there'd be a Mr., a Mrs., and maybe some little Potato Heads, but they, but the Potato Head people make other characters that are already, they're already a thing. Yeah. Like there's a, a Buzz Lightyear Potato Head. Mm-hmm. There's a Forky Potato Head, which means that its head is not a fork, but a potato. I mean, right. I, I just, I thought it was almost surreal, like I was on some kind of acid trip when I looked at these permutations of Mr. Potato Head. There is wow, a, I know what to do this afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> there, you can get a Kylo Ren Mr. Potato Head. I, it's uh. so crazy. <laughs> so yes, that's how you keep the brand alive. You you change oh. with the times, and and so I think there's sort of a very smooth transition from Mr. Potato Head, uh, this kind of bulbous uh, creature. Oh wait a minute, I just got sent some kind of picture here by the producer. Oh yeah, so it's Forky. Uh, I see it now. Well, that is sort of a weird crossover. So you've got Forky, right. you know, who's part of the cast, there's, and in there's Toy already Story. a Forky right. action figure. We don't need one that's head is not a fork but a potato. <laughs> I don't get it. <laughs> well, where's where's Aristotle when you need him? Um, all right. So, um, but I think there's sort of a, a lovely transition here from the bulbous, friendly, child, child attractive um, Mr. Potato Head to the bulbous, friendly, uh, you know, perhaps also more inviting to and safer for children, uh, modified USPS truck, which has been uh, introduced uh, this week and created, as everything does, including a gender-fluid Mr. Potato Head, uh, a stir on social media, people comparing it to all kinds of things. At one point, there was somebody comparing it to Nicolas Cage's forehead, which I really, I actually spent some time trying to understand how that could be the case, and I just, it's I don't so, It's so, it. it, the window in the front is so, first of all, not aerodynamic, and it's so ginormous, and then the, the part where the engine goes there in the front, it's so tiny, so it looks like something that would be on Toy Story. Yes, I mean, it does. It, or, or in ca- cars, uh, you know, would be the other yeah. maybe more obvious thing. I actually really like this truck, and I think I can successfully defend it. But I want to hear, first of all, Elizabeth, are you saying you don't like the new USPS truck? Well, there are two problems I have. One is the lack of it being aerodynamic. I don't know if that's just a space requirement, but it's still, I think you can be aerodynamic and still... Um, and have enough space. The other thing you know, is this, that this, is, this isn't like this isn't Ford versus Ferrari here. You know, we're, we're not really, no, no, but it, we're not concerned still, with how fast we can get the truck going. But it's but the other thing that bothered me was uh, the workhorse group, which is the group that lost the bid. Uh, they wanted it to be an all electric car mm-hmm. or, or truck, and uh, they they lost that bid. And so now it's going to be a combo of electric, and some will be gas. And then they're you know I guess they're nod to being more green is that the gas ones have a way to be retrofitted to electric in the future if need be. And I'm thinking this is not really looking at the future. Um, it's, it's really just saying we're kind of going halfway on the green thing. Right. I think part of the problem there is that um, 
the uh, the infrastructure for charging for electric vehicles is not there yet. Yes. And I think that an institution like the post office, which has to go long distances in many areas of the country, um, I think the uh, fear there was to actually cause problems, not to cause problems. Mm -hmm. So I can understand that part of it. But at least they're retrofitted, so at least they can change them once yeah, we get they enough. Yeah, they can change it in the future. But I think one of the one of the most extraordinary aspects of it is that in, it's such a contrast to the design of cars. You know, there was some on one of the web pages they were commenting that you know, in a Cadillac SUV, you can kill seven children before you see them, because of the design of the car is just so inimical to pedestrians. Mm -hmm. And so um, one of the beautiful things about this is you just look at it and with that huge window in the front and um, you immediately think that it's something, you, first of all, you can see the driver, you can make eye contact, it's not darkened, it's, um, it, it looks like a utility vehicle that actually can work. And a lot of, uh, they, they've consulted with a lot of people, the story behind how they set up the interior for people who were delivering the mail, you know, how they would have access to things without causing them injury when they were stacking packages in the back. There are all kinds of details. I, I just think it's an extraordinary um, design feat that actually probably involved a committee, but actually seems to have worked here. I mean, well, also the fact that it's been 30 years since they changed they, they were saying that they had no AC, no airbags, no anti-lock brakes. I mean, this right. was a very unsafe vehicle for people who are who are doing this, who are using these vehicles every day. It was just super unsafe. So thank God we're making these changes, but very late. I know well, it's it really an interesting example of how uh, the, the post office has been under attack by certain people in the government for 30, 40 years. I mean, more than that, actually, 50 years that they didn't want to fund it. They didn't want to have it to have political power. They didn't want it to offer consumer services like banking. And they also sort of, they, they, in their meanness and determination to damage it, they wouldn't allow new vehicles to be acquired. And so that's why we're at this situation now. So I think this vehicle represents something really special on that front. Right. I mean, the other reason, there are reasons why it's shaped the way that it's shaped. Um, and Amazon, and that's the Papulian through line that will take us uh, from this topic to Nomadland. But Amazon is one of the big reasons from 2019 to 2020, even. USBS saw a 19% bump in package deliveries and an 11% dip in mail deliveries. So they're, you know, they're delivering more uh, bulky things uh, than uh, than envelopes now. Uh, and, but, and they think it's, you know, pandemic driven but also maybe a long-term trend, too. They've always been part of the so-called last-mile phenomenon of Amazon and, and other services like that. So, yeah, it's got this big cab, and and it's... Yeah, it has a 360-degree camera. It also has a backup camera. It has a forward collision warning. That sort of low-slung engine compartment then has this bumper sticking out, kind of like a cow catcher on a train. I think that is meant to be a safety feature that if it hits you, it's going to hit you in the legs. Uh, and yeah, these the trucks that you How see... How does the whole engine fit in there? I don't know. I have no idea. Uh, that, that 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 succeeds my. Um... Well, hi hybrid engines can be made much smaller. I think yeah. that that's a function of that. But you know, one of the most uh, heartening things I think about this design is that it actually respects the workers who have to mm. deliver the mail. That they've actually paid attention to the ergonomics and the safety 
of the people actually delivering the mail. And, and I, I think that that is one of the things that is so neglected. In, like you look at the, the, the contortions that truck drivers with other delivery companies have to deal with packages, trying to get them through narrow spaces and so on. I think that they've really put some thought into this. And I wouldn't be surprised if that didn't actually spread out further to the industry that other deliveries will become other delivery vehicles with other companies will become like that because you really we're really at a stage where we treat the people who work these things who bring all these packages now that there's very little respect of them it's like the you know the drivers for uber or lyft you know that that okay they're not really workers they're not really with us well in the case of the post office they are with us and they're actually showing that they have that connection by doing this, I think. Well, yeah, I mean, so... You know, it reminds me of uh, that at our college, we have an advanced manufacturing program. And when I learned about it, I, the, one of the things that I thought was so cool is that the new machines now on the floor for manufacturing are designed with ergon- ergonomics in mind so that the, uh, that the workers have fewer problems from repetitive stress injuries and, and, and bending over the wrong way, et cetera. And I thought, about time. I agree with you totally on that. About yeah. time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I do want to say also that there's maybe a, a kind of a semi-profound message in all of this, too. So and a lot of it does have to do with, uh, to refer back to what James was talking about, what's your vision of government? Do you hate the government? Do you want to hate the government? Do you want to resent the government? Do you want as little government as possible? Or do you like government enough, just in the sense of having a well-run, efficient government. And, and Elizabeth, I know you've lived in other places. I'm guessing you may have lived in countries that don't have a good postal service. Uh, and, and you know, you, you really notice that right away when you're in a country that doesn't have a good postal service. In the United States, the U.S. Postal Service, Pew Research Center checks this every year. The U.S. Postal Service is everybody's favorite government agency. It has a 91% approval rating, which, I mean, chocolate chip cookies don't have a 91% uh, mm-hmm. approval rating. I mean, it's that's an incredible thing. And people tend to really, I like, you know, I mean, we know our carrier. Sherry uh, is our carrier. My dog, Declan, thinks Sherry is some kind of divine being. His entire goal, and when he sees the new trucks, he's going to get very excited because he wants to be on the truck with Sherry. He wants to go around the neighborhood, uh, you know, Aww. helping to deliver the mail and stuff like that. But I, I think, you know, so, so to have a truck that, first of all, has air conditioning, yes, that would be nice. Everybody else has air conditioning in their car. So maybe the worker's going to have air conditioning. But also kind of, there's something kind of friendly looking about the truck. And it's obviously designed so that, you know, it's going to be safer to have around the neighborhood, better you know, better visuals just for the driver and all the safety mm-hmm. features and stuff like that. It's the government sending a message uh, about you know about the face that it most frequently presents to Americans. You encounter the postal service unless you have some you know uh, unusual occupation or you're being prosecuted by the Department of Justice or something. You encounter the postal service way more than you encounter any other federal agency. And so yeah, I think you know, like having a truck that people will like and and looks like it belongs to a a workforce that is liked by its management. I mean, that could actually be a profound message. All right, I'll shut up and let you guys talk. It doesn't. It, it also doesn't look threatening if you're a walker. I mean, as a frequent walker, I can tell you, when you see an SUV coming at you with darkened windows, you're wondering whether, uh, is that person watching? You can't really make eye contact. 
they could be texting or doing anything and, and you you just have to step out of the way there's a feeling of i look at vehicles like that and feel a sort of hostility to human beings is expressed in those designs and i thought this design expresses a real sort of connection with being human which i like all right, it Elizabeth. It's kind of yeah. a playful design in a way, too. I mean, I mean, as much as I think it looks like a giant toy, um, there is something that's warm and kind of receptive about a design like that. That they weren't trying to be sleek and and uh, and super, you know, cool with tinted windows and all this. This is something that is, you know, the, the mailmen and women get to know their customers. A lot of them. That's something that still hasn't changed in America. Yeah, I actually, I actually. <laughs> Research that a little bit during some of the kind of crisis of the DeJoy uh, Postal Service. And it is absolutely the case. People told me incredible stories. Uh, I mean, there's sort of the typical story about the mail carrier being the first person to notice that somebody's not around and maybe, you know, calling the police to say, you know, this person hasn't, I haven't seen this person in a while. And I, you know, half the time they're like social workers. They already know that you had high blood pressure or something like that. But I I collected stories about these carriers doing like really special things, you know, make going to really uh, extra efforts. Not every single one of them. They're they're not all saints, but yeah, I think they really know their neighborhoods, and in a way, they are you know they're kind of first responders sometimes to uh, unfortunately to tragedies, but to everything. So, well, listen, we should probably uh, take a little break here. Uh, we want to leave plenty of time to talk about Nomadland. So let's take that break, and uh, we'll head right back. All right, uh, we are back. Uh, yes, Nomadland is the fourth, uh, to, by my count, feature film by director Chloe Zhao. I hope I'm saying that right. Z H A O. Uh, and um, uh, the writer was her most recent and previous one. Got uh, an awful lot of acclaim and justifiably so. Now she's made an adaptation of a nonfiction book called Nomadland. Uh, the book and the movie are essentially about an older workforce that travels around America, sometimes purely out of need to find the work, sometimes because, at least partly because, they've discovered they like that. They like living that way. Um, so let's hear a little clip from this. So you're going to hear um, Linda May, one of the many nomads who uh, are out there driving around, talking about her economic circumstances. Uh, and one of the movie's two actual well-known performers, Frances McDormand, who's the star of the movie. She plays Fern. You'll also hear Bob Wells as Bob. Uh, here's a clip from Nomadland. I was getting close to 62, and... I went online to look at my Social Security benefit. It said $550. Her and I had worked my whole life. I'd worked since I was 12 years old, raised two daughters. I couldn't believe it. So I'm online and I find Bob Wells' cheap RV living. I could live in an RV, travel, and not have to work for the rest of my life. RTR is a boot camp for beginner nomads, people 
Bob Wells looks just like Santa Claus. Doesn't he? <laughs> Everybody says that. <laughs> What's RTR stand for? Rubber Tramp Rendezvous. It is in Quartzsite, Arizona, out in the middle of the desert on BLM land. You should come. I'm going to make you a map. No, I don't think I'm going to go. Oh, I hope you come. I'm going to make you a map anyway. So the movie takes you from Empire, Nevada, where uh, a gypsum plant where she has worked has closed down. I'm talking about Fern, played by Frances McDormand, to an Amazon fulfillment center in Southern California, Quartzsite, Arizona. You just heard about that in the clip. Uh, Badlands National Park, where there are uh, National Park Service jobs. A beet harvest, I believe, in Nebraska, uh, and then back out to California, uh, although arriving first at uh, the beautiful Point Arena area of northern coast. California. So, um, so James, get us started here. Uh, I know both of you really like this movie a lot, and, and I did too, but uh, uh, give me your sort of overall reactions. Well, the first thing I thought actually was, oh, how I wish I could see that on the big screen in the dark. <laughs> uh, this is one of those films that had a sort of magnitude that was asking for the big screen. But um, actually, I found it a very sort of personal movie, and, and just I felt like you got so close to the characters, Francis McDormand in particular, of course, but um, there's something about the film um, that is, it, it's expressing something that seems to be popping up in a lot of sort of smaller films, perhaps as a result of the fact that these films are not getting onto the big screen. Uh, in other words, they're stories that have a, a broad significance Yet at the same time, they're very small and personal. And Frances McDormand somehow has a massive, somehow manages in every film she appears, she always makes me curious about her and draws me into her character. Um, even Ebbing, Missouri, you know, that uh, she, she plays a sort of outrageous character. But in this film, in Nomadland, Nomadland, it's really something that is very internal about discovering about yourself, about being in later life and um, discovering things like, uh, you know, with, with her friend Linda May and, and talking about only $550 for Social Security and having to sort of reinvent yourself. And the contrasts that appear in the film uh, that, that uh, Frances McDormand Fern has to work in this incredibly scary Amazon location. I, I don't think I've seen the inside of a building that large, um, except maybe the, in, in the film uh, that we often showed in the past at Sony Studio Baraka, there was a film of people in Indonesia making cigarettes by hand in a vast warehouse space like that. And there seemed to be in the Amazon warehouse this sort of sense of disconnection and coldness that the People who were wandering around and looking for work co were completely the opposite. It gave you a sort of sense of, uh, of like how to survive amidst these horrible privations and the, the, the society that is driven by corporate profits and, and, and not really taking care of people. And uh, Francis McDormand and the other characters in the film, really every one of them interested me, including uh, David Strathairn, who is attracted to her, but he's attracted to her for that reason, but she doesn't want to be drawn. I mean, just there are endless things about it to me that were fascinating. I never stopped being fascinated for a minute. 
You know, it was interesting that they were able to get the permission to shoot uh, in that Amazon Fulfillment Center. I wondered about that, too. Yes. So, well, Amazon, actually, they... um, they had just bumped their wage uh, minimum wage up to fifteen dollars. Uh, they thought that they had sort of uh, a pretty good story to tell at that moment. Uh, Chloe Zhao also said that she, you know, she, I mean, you hear, for example, Fern say that that it's good work for good pay or something, something like that. Uh, that yeah. uh, the, it is depicted anyway as an opportunity that this particular workforce is happy to have, and they do have this thing called Camper Force at Amazon for real, where they kind of encourage this particular nomadic population to come there and then there are various amenities and stuff like that set up for the, for them and their RVs or campers or, or whatever but yeah i mean i think that's that that does explain that i just wanted to say one more thing before we go to elizabeth because it just you made me think about it which is that you know, talking about that idea of watching it in a big dark theater um so francis mcdormand went and saw the rider uh, Zhao's previous film uh, at one of the big film festivals uh, she snuck away she was supposed to be doing um uh, just a, a lot of publicity for three billboards and she said something very similar. She said, one of the major reasons I don't do a lot of publicity or sell perfume or watches is because I want to be able to serve a story and audience so they can go into that dark room like I did with the writer and within the first couple of frames be lost in a world they've never experienced before. Mm -hmm. So very much echoing James's uh, thoughts. So I know, uh, Elizabeth, that you uh, wanted to be on the show in particular because you feel kind of a personal connection to this material. Tell us about that. Well, as anybody who knows me knows, because I chronicled the whole darn thing on Facebook, I did a 10,000-mile solo car trek uh, around the country in 2018, 2019. I uh, drove out to Seattle, lived there for three months, and then uh, drove all the way down to Bakersfield, California, and did the the Route 10, which nobody takes, and I know why now, uh, across the bottom of the country. And you you definitely go through just tons and tons and tons of scrub desert but it was also the this idea of I was I had retired early, I was getting out of a, a, a dopey relationship, <laughs> and I wanted to put a lot of distance between, especially that and and other things that were going on, and I wanted to go out and be lost in America, and I, obviously I was doing this. This was a choice of mine to do this. This was a very different situation than than gig workers. But I was also, in a way, re- reinventing myself, too, figuring out who am I post-retirement when I was an English professor for 21 years, right? So um, when I see her her husband, I, I don't know if it, how spoiler alertish we have to be here, but right in the beginning, we know that her husband has passed. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that's a spoiler alert. But she then, uh, and the town has died, and they tell you that before the movie even starts. So she's no longer a part of a community. She's not a married person. She's not a mom. There's no kids involved. So all of the labels that one would have, especially women's labels of mom and wife and sister and all of that, a lot of that was really stripped away. And she, like Phoenix rising from the ashes, she just seemed to be reborn in a way into making her own decisions. And I looked at a lot of comments online, uh, national comments, Uh, in response to this film. And it does seem to be divided between having terrible pity for her and people saying, and people envying her. Uh, The fact that she could start to make her own decisions about where she wanted to live and and if she wanted to move around. And at least three times, I believe, in the movie, she's offered a place to live and she turns those down. So it's quite obvious in the movie that she 
likes the idea of the open road, but also she has these wonderful communities she ends up being with. The RV community was far more friendly and inclusive and had more activities than I would have imagined. So um, I, I guess I related to it in the sense of a woman out in the world kind of making her own choices in a solo way, uh, but she was actually a lot less solo in her journey than, than I was, uh, which I thought was a pretty cool part of the movie. I thought it was gonna be about her kind of on her own struggling. And uh, it seemed like there was always people to, to help her if she needed it, although she was very self, uh, self. So, yeah. So we should say that one of the things that uh, Chloe Zhao is kind of famous for doing, although when she moves to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, this is going to be somewhat more difficult. But uh, in her movies, she often kind of works with the people who are there. Uh, and in particular, in The Rider, um, she basically, The Rider, I, I don't think there's really much of anybody in The Rider who isn't just a local uh, in South Dakota. Uh, and she kind of built the whole movie around uh, a young man that she uh, had met there who was a, a Bronco rider. So, um, and, and here we have Francis McDormand and David Strathairn, but then James, everybody else is sort of a found person. Sometimes they're called non-professional actors. I think it's uh, the, maybe the there's one director who's trying to pioneer the term first timers, which seems somehow or other a little bit less judgmental than non-professional actors. But you know, she so you have almost this fusion of a dramatic feature with a documentary because a lot of these people are playing themselves. There's a character, a nomad character, a woman named Swanky, who actually helped Zhao find new locations when she couldn't shoot the courtside scene the way that she wanted to because these people also really know the area that you're doing the filming in. But uh, James, as somebody who watches a lot of movies, tell me how you react to all that. Well, I think that um, Chloe Zhao is really a person who has an extraordinary skill in weaving together that sort of the, the professional actors with the extras who are really not extras. They become equals in the film. And I think that's a really difficult thing to do. There are so many filmmakers who are so controlling, I guess is the best word, that they have an image of what they want these background characters or less than foreground characters to be. And I think Zhao is, has this ability to somehow include all of these fascinating characters on the same plane as Fern. And uh, it, it's, it's something that um, I think is beginning to emerge in a, in a sort of interesting way. Um, there's another film that I saw recently called First Cow, Kelly Reichert's film, mm. um, which is totally unexpected in its observation of what's going on, characters, small characters, background characters, and the main characters are incredibly enigmatic. They sort of merge with the background. And to me, this is a sort of new direction to take that's taking film away, storytelling away from personality and more to understanding complexity of relationships. And what is, who are these people? Who is this guy who is telling people about the economic disparities that so many people are facing? And uh, David Strathairn, who's sort of a character who's been disconnected from his family, um, and and yet here's somebody like Fern coming along who's lost her family, who's saying he needs to be he needs to be present for his family. These are so many sort of nuanced issues that Zhao has seems to have a real knack 
for actually making significant and keeping you interested and constantly bringing out new ones. And it's going to be an interesting contrast to see what she does with a uh, with a, a a Marvel movie. But I think that her interest is clear. Her interest and skill is clearly going to be exploring these types of films that are so different. Yeah, Elizabeth, I like what James says because you know initially, as I was emailing to you guys, I said it could be argued that the movie doesn't have much of a plot. But as James is talking, I realize it does have. A plot, but the plot is made up of these little moments. Uh, I mean, it isn't like there's this one huge area of conflict. And I think is- we're we're used to that. We're used to some big event that changes the character's life—a death, a disease, a love affair, whatever it is. And what I liked about this is that she made her decision over the course of the movie by just tiny little ordinary incremental daily things that just kept adding up to say, yes, this is me. This this is me. This is what I want to do. This is my story. I'm writing it all now. But nothing, you know, that's why there were some comments where people said they got bored during the movie. And for me, I was fascinated with just the little things. And she gets tempted by things. People offer her a place to live. and But she, you know, she gets to make decisions. And you see her um, hardening that decision and developing that decision as it goes on in a very quiet, incremental way. Yeah, I think that's a very <laughs> point. I, 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 I totally agree with that. I, I think that these are things that, uh, I mean, it's, it's a weird coincidence that films like this are coming out uh, at the, uh, after a year of this weird time um, and, and not being able to sort of socialize at movies and see things on the big screen. Um, there's a sort of a fine-grained quality to that, to human experience being exposed in an interesting story with interesting characters. Um, there is a film that I just did see actually on the big screen, uh, Supernova, for example, um, about two men uh, facing a crisis in their lives. And um, that was the kind of film, you know, you could imagine the audience sitting there, uh, perhaps, you know, had you read a treatment of the story, you'd think, oh, no, you know, people are not going to sit here for this for nearly two hours. But it's actually a fascinating sort of nuanced exploration of character and people facing certain things in their lives. Just when you think about the challenges that so many people have faced in the past year, this is this is really something that is becoming part of the lingua franca, if you like, of film, that uh, it's, it's something that people want to hear about. And Frances McDormand is like this lightning rod for this feeling in this film. And I uh, I think that the coming together with uh, Chloe Zhao is a really fortuitous thing to happen. And I, I can't wait for sort of more things like this that, that, that will explore these the, the, this direction. You know, it, it is a very interesting performance by McDormand. Uh, she isn't given a lot of eloquent lines. Fern is essentially a person of relatively few words. Uh, she is also not, uh, I don't know, gussied up. And it's a pretty unsparing look uh, at, at McDormand's incredibly expressive uh, but heavily lined face. And she uses that face. I mean, there's a lot of like really great pensive kind of face acting all the way through this. But, you know, it, it isn't necessarily uh, um, 
Elizabeth, as you're sort of saying, you know, the, this is a character who makes decisions in tiny, tiny, little, almost indiscernible uh, increments. So it's not a script that just that tells the actor what to do. It's like the actor has to almost talk to the audience somehow using her face and stuff like that. And I, well, I love you know, the, all the symbolism of her, you know, kind of burning away the things that don't matter anymore, like the, the stuff in the storage locker that's left there and then finally given away. And, you know, the we can say she's unkempt, or we can say that some of those things are not important to her anymore. They're not her essentials. She wears her husband's old jacket around and her clothes are very utilitarian. But I saw in that kind of a cool freedom. I mean, if you, you know, you see me right now with my nails done and everything else, just the freedom to just be your character. And I mean, not as a character in a play, but a char- your own character shining through, which I found in her case was, you know, she was so self-reliant, so strong, competent. She was a good listener. She could be generous. She could, when she was called upon, she was there for people. She was a good member of a community when she needed to be. But she finally got the chance to to have the choice of when she wanted to be, um, would be connected to people and when she just wanted to go sit in her van and and, and be by herself, which is something she didn't have in her marriage. She says that he was a good man, but he wanted to live in Empire, Nevada. She did not. And so her her whole life was was bending towards something that really wasn't her first choice. Yeah. Uh, the very definition of self-awareness, I think, a journey to self-awareness. Right. It, and it's there's something very Buddhist about the whole. I can imagine uh, groups of American Buddhists back when we get back to the theaters, even renting a, a multiplex thing and watching this together, because there's uh, very much that kind of sense of non-attachment uh, of, of sort of letting go of stuff. So um, a thing to watch uh, in the weeks and days ahead. Um, so Searchlight Pictures, uh, this is their film. They've been kind of campaigning for three of these people who are not really actors who are in this film, Bob Wells, who is this, you could sort of heard him in the clip. He's a kind of a, an evangelist of this nomad movement. Uh, and he's often seen on YouTube videos in real life. Uh, and you see him here uh, at that so-called RTR uh, meeting in Arizona. Uh, Swanky, we mentioned before, is this very self-sufficient uh, nomad. And then Linda May, whom you heard in the clip. So those are all real people. Searchlight's hoping that they can actually get supporting actor nominations, uh, which is especially difficult to do because you often have to kind of campaign for for those and these people are real nomads <laughs> they are not standing around waiting to be part of some kind of publicity campaign but but we didn't uh, even mention his his little speech at the beginning that she hears about yeah the, the politics of the movie uh, of the idea that the work world may have chewed you up and spit you out but here's a place you can come where you are included you're valued uh you have freedom to move around follow the sun whatever you want to do so it's not a completely pretty picture in any sense of the word, but at least there is a kind of, I have my own life and my own agency. He projected that so well. I agree. That was amazing. Yes, actually, you know, some people had sort of, I don't know if criticize is the right word, but attempted to categorize this, categorize Zhao's film as being kind of about Trump country and about Trump people. And her uh, response was that the Bob Wells speech was, she said, the most socialist thing I've ever heard in my life. And I'm from China. Um, Absolutely. (laughs) All right. So we have to pause there. So we'll have some time to make some recommendations on the other side. Here we go. Uh, But yes, uh, you're listening to The Nose. I'm Colin McEnroe. With me, Elizabeth Kiefer and James Hanley. 
And I'm back. We're back. Uh, when I say we're back, that includes uh, some people I need to thank right now. Kat Pastors, our technical producer. She's the one who's there in the studio making everything happen. And Jonathan McPants is 99% of the time the producer of Nose episodes, and he is the producer of this one. So thanks to both of them. Uh, thanks also to our panelists, Elizabeth Kiefer and James Hanley. Now we're going to make some recommendations uh, to you. James, why don't you get us going? Okay, actually, four quick things. <laughs> That's <laughs> the fine. Two movies that, that movie buffs really have to see, but really extraordinary, affecting movies, I thought. One is White Tiger by Ramin Barani. I loved it. Oh, you saw it? Great. Okay, yes. Yeah. Just totally amazing and so unexpected. And the other one is The Sound of Metal. Uh, yes. with <laughs> I I've, I've seen that one too. Yeah, that was another sort of groundbreaking film. The other two amazing books, one is Extraterrestrial by Avi Loeb, L-O-E-B, which is about that strange object that came into view a few years ago called Oumuamua, which was thought to be an asteroid, but he is saying that it, perhaps it isn't. And he's a really extraordinary scientist, an incredible read, that book. And the other one is The Nolan Variations by Tom Schoen, which is an in-depth analysis of uh, Christopher Nolan talking to him and looking at his films um, as also another unique book, really highly recommended. We should say The White Tiger is available to you on Netflix. I think Netflix is the producing entity for The White Tiger. And Sound of Metal, I think you can get from Amazon Prime. And it does have a tremendous performance by Riz Ahmed as a heavy metal drummer who is A, in recovery from addiction to heroin and everything else in the world too, I think, and then loses his hearing. And that's very much the, the plot of the movie. And it really, you know, people who know this show know that we've gotten very much involved in the past with the deaf world. And there's sort of a, a politics to deafness uh, that this movie explores very, very frankly, and I think pretty effectively. So I, I would also recommend that movie. But uh, Elizabeth, what are you going to recommend to us? Well, I'm in a fabulous book club, uh, West Hartford and Hartford Gals, very smart group of women. And the last book we read was The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue by V.E. Schwab. It's got time travel. It's got selling your soul to the devil. Shonda Rhimes must grab this and do a Bridgerton thing on it and, be, and have a really super hot, sexy devil. And then the other thing I would, I'm going to do a not, uh, recommend that you do not do it, which is do not install TikTok on your phone. Please do not do it because I thought it would be just a bunch of little kids doing dance videos, but it is politics, music, visual arts, nature, animal sports, so much diversity, including more from indigenous people than I have ever seen in my entire life. Lots of comedy, movie clips, so many smart, amazing people in the world. So unless you have time to expand your knowledge and your humanity, please do not install TikTok. I would also say that there's some of what's popular on TikTok is kind of the opposite of that. For example, there's a series of this guy. I think the thing is called Can You Hit This With A Hammer? Can I Hit This With A Hammer? It's just <laughs> him hitting stuff with a hammer. Uh, and the one where he's hitting a shower door with a hammer, glass shower door, that's like 13 million views. So. 
I find that all, all very puzzling. Well, I wanted to do a recommendation kind of a little bit based on one of the topics that we had here today. So I discovered I can't really recommend this in the sense that I've used it and I know that it's going to work really well. But there's uh, now several services that do this. But the original is called Anonymous Potato. You can find them at anonymouspotato.com. And one of the things that they will do is uh, you give them a photo of yourself or somebody that you love or whatever. You upload it to them and they will shop it onto an actual potato somehow. So suddenly the face of, of yourself or somebody that you know will be shopped onto a potato and then shipped to the appropriate party. They, they do other stuff with potatoes and messages and stuff like that. But That's but anyway, hilarious. that kind of idea, I just couldn't let the opportunity pass to, uh, so after Mr. Potato Head. And then That's I would also say- mail trucks. Yeah, that's right. And then it'll go one of these really cute new mail trucks and uh, somebody will get it and they'll be really, really happy. So yeah, now we really did a Papoulian through line. We just tied it all together just now. <laughs> so um, the other thing that I, I would just say, I mean, I, we've kind of alluded to it already, but so Chloe Zhao is, uh, is obviously going to be one of the filmmakers of the future Marvel Cinematic Universe or not. Uh, so the writer, I believe, is still available just as, you know, without any extra charge on Amazon Prime. And then I, I haven't seen Songs My Brothers Taught Me, which is her first movie, uh, but uh, is supposed to be really, really good. I think that's on Amazon Prime, too. So, uh, And I would also recommend, after you've seen Nomadland, track down the cover story on New York Magazine, the one that was just delivered to me yesterday by my delightful mail carrier, Sherry. Uh, and there's uh, she's the, the cover story, Chloe Zhao, indie auteur, Oscar frontrunner, and suddenly Hollywood's favorite director. It's by Allison Wilmore. It's terrific. And it'll help you understand things and we're going to go out with daft punk daft punk have been around for decades and decades i don't know whether they broke up or they just want to start seeing other robots but they're not going to be together anymore so we're going to say farewell to them musically and say farewell to our great panelists james hanley can't wait to get back to cine studio and see great movies on a great screen and elizabeth kiefer emerita from tuxis community college this is called end of the line <laughs>